Well, good morning. We continue on this morning in the book of Ephesians. We're going to be looking in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 7 through 12. Now, if you'll remember from last week, the what we're going to keep seeing, I think, on and on throughout the book of Ephesians is that it's all about God, not about us. And of course, this was very prominent last week, and it will play into this week's message as well as we look at these verses, beginning with chapter 1, verse 7. If you'll read, with the, uh, read through that with me, please. Ephesians chapter 1, verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace, which He made to abound toward us in all wisdom and prudence, having made known to us the mystery of His will according to His good pleasure, which He purposed in Himself, that in the dispensation of the fullness of the times, he might gather together in, in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven, which are on earth in him. In him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. Would you pray with me, please? Father, we just thank you so much for your grace, for your redemption, Father, the salvation that you have brought to us through Jesus Christ and the shedding of his blood. And Lord, may we give all thanks, all praise, all honor, and all glory to you. Please, this morning, just draw us into your presence. Make yourself known among us. Use us as you will. Change our hearts. Convict us. And use us. Thank you, Lord. For it is in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Redemption. It talks about in verse 7. In Him we have redemption through His blood. The forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. That in and of itself says a lot. Now redemption isn't free. It didn't come freely. There was a price that was paid. The price was paid for our redemption and the price of that was blood. Because without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. Hebrews 9.22 tells us, And according to the law, almost all things are purified with blood, and without shedding of blood, there is no remission. Now, had this price of blood not been paid by another, the bill would fall on us. Because Romans 6.23 says, Quite specifically, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. 
There is not a single one of us who has escaped this curse of sin. And as such, the wages that we have earned, what we have earned from it, is death. And this price of blood would have fallen on us. The bill would be issued to us, and we would be responsible to pay it, had it not been paid by another. But that blood that was shed, that blood that paid the price, belonged to Jesus Christ. He paid that bill. He was the perfect Lamb of God, sacrificed once for all. No more sacrifices to be made. Hebrews chapter 9, 11 through 12 says this, But Christ came as a high priest of the good things to come with the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, not with the blood of goats and calves, but with his own blood, he entered the most holy place once for all, having obtained eternal redemption. He was crucified. He died one time. That's it. That one shedding of blood covers all sin of every person who will accept him, past, present, and future. The perfect Lamb of God, not to be sacrificed over and over and over again with these imperfect sacrifices of, of goats and calves, but the perfect Lamb of God. Never again will he or could he be crucified. Once was sufficient. This purchase of forgiveness was initiated by the grace of God. No other reason. We can't take any pride in it, brag about it, or we had no part in it. It was all initiated by the grace of God. Remember, as we talked about last week, it's all about God. This was initiated by His grace. I mean, verse 7 tells us that in Him we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of sins according to the riches of His grace. Now, with this gift of salvation comes this gift of grace. And God's grace abounds to us according to His riches. And that means that His grace is endless. It cannot be depleted because His riches are endless and cannot be depleted. Verse 8 says, Which He made to abound toward us, talking about God's grace, in all wisdom and prudence. And verse 7 told us that according to the riches of His grace, which He made abound to us, with all wisdom and prudence. Now, His grace is endless. We cannot deplete it. There's more than we can ever use up. And that's a good thing. Now, this grace. Grace has been defined as getting what you don't deserve and not getting what you do deserve. We do not deserve God's gift of salvation. His redemption. But we got it through the blood of Jesus Christ. We do deserve death in hell for our sin. 
Jesus Christ has rescued us from that. For all who call upon his name shall be saved. And, and grace can be viewed as the dispensation of God's love. He loves us. And so he pours out that love on us, and the pouring out of that love on us can be described as grace. But here's the thing. According to verse 8 here, he doesn't haphazardly dispense that grace. He uses wisdom and prudence. He demands the same with our dispensation of love and grace to others. Philippians chapter 1 verse 9 tells us, In this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more in knowledge and discernment. We see in, in Ephesians, God dispenses grace. He uses wisdom and prudence. And now we see that we're being told to use knowledge and discernment in our love toward others. So here's the thing. First and foremost, God both defines and initiates love. It's because of Him we know what love is in the first place. 1 John chapter 4, verse 19 says we love Him because He first loved us. He initiated that love. He began it. And then so it was reciprocated toward him, back to Him. But it began with Him. Without Him there would be no such thing. And because love is of God, we need to handle it the way that He does. That our love should grow, as we're told in, in Philippians chapter 1, verse 9 that we looked at, that our love should grow in knowledge and discernment speaks volumes. Godly knowledge and discernment are the keys to knowing how to love, and God Himself demonstrates this for us. This is the key to knowing how to love someone in the way that is best for them, because that's really the key thing. Love isn't blind. Love is instead, and love, love is perceptive. It sees things. It recognizes things. And it carefully scrutinizes to distinguish between right and wrong. And this falls right in line with 1 Thessalonians 5.21, which tells us to test all things and hold fast to what is good. So now, a sum of your 1 Corinthians 13 would tell us that true love would always do what is best for another. Not necessarily what they want, but what is best. So while love often entails helping someone, if not properly applied, or quote-unquote help could do more harm than good. In short, Love would never enable someone to continue in their sin. Nor would it ignore a person's sin. What it's going to do is acknowledge sin and try to help someone out of that sin, not enable them to continue into it. We're not talking about beating someone over the head with it. We're talking about acknowledging it through the Word of God and then helping them out of it into a God-honoring, Christ-honoring life. 
There's a big difference there. So as noted in our passage, God uses wisdom and prudence to determine how His grace is dispensed. He won't grant something simply because you want it if it's not good for you. Remember, all good gifts come from the Lord. He'll only do what's best for you. What's going to help you grow? What's going to help you learn? What's going to take care of your needs? Sometimes that involves tests and trials. Sometimes that involves some hardships to draw you to Him, to help you grow. But in the end, it's it's all a measure of God's love in doing what's best for you. We need to remember that's always His motive is to draw you closer to Him because that is what's best for you. That's what's best for me. What's best for any of us. So as Scripture demands, this should also be a model for us. This is what we should be thinking about as we show grace and mercy and love to others. Is First and foremost, we should be pointing them toward the Lord above all else because that is ultimately what is best for anyone. Now verse 9 tells us that he purposed within himself to have made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in himself. You know, there is no higher authority than God. So what he does, he does entirely of himself. And he made known to us as part of our redemption this mystery that has now been revealed, which is in Jesus Christ being our Redeemer, our Messiah, now revealed. Uh, 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 this is the mystery. And he has done that. He has purposed that within himself. He has done that according to his own will and his alone. There is no higher authority which he acts by It is all of God. It is all about Him. Now as we look at verse 10 through 12, it says that in the dispensation of the fullness of times, He might gather together in one all things in Christ, both which are in heaven and which are in earth, in Him. In Him also we have obtained an inheritance, being predestined, according to the purpose of Him who works all things according to the counsel of His will, that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of His glory. So, He will draw all things together in Him and bring us an inheritance for the purpose of His glory all about God. That He would unite all things, as the Scripture says, you know, at the fullness of times. You know, at the end of this world as we know it, God's going to gather all believers together into His millennial kingdom, this thousand-year reign. And this is what our passage refers to as a 
dispensation, or that is God's plan, for the fullness of times. So the fullness of times would be the completion of this current history that we're in, and the beginning of a new age, which is the millennial reign. Revelation chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. It says, I saw the thrones, and they sat on them, and judgment was committed to them. Then I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for their witness to Jesus and for the word of God, who had not worshipped the beast or his image and had not received his mark on their foreheads or on their hands. And they lived and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. But the rest of the dead, the unsaved, did not live again until the thousand years were finished. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is he who has part in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power, but they shall be priests of God and of Christ and shall reign with him a thousand years. So after that, God will gather everything to himself, into the, after this thousand years ends, he's going to gather everything to himself into the eternal future, and the new heaven and the new earth will be created. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Now I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away. Also, there was no more sea. Now this, universe, this new universe is going to be totally united under Christ. It is going to be completely without sin, totally united under Christ. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 27 and 28. For he has put all things under his feet. But when he says all things are put under him, it is evident that he who put all things under him is accepted. Now when all things are made subject to him, then the Son himself will also be subject to him who put all things under him, that God may be all in all. Philippians 2, verses 10 and 11, says that the, name of, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, of those in heaven and those on earth and those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Complete unity with Christ, all united under him. This will be our inheritance that has been predestined to the believer. It's been predestined by God that we obtain this inheritance. Christ is the source of our divine inheritance. It emanates directly from him, and it is so certain that it is spoken of as if it has already been received. L look at this. Verse 11, In him also we have obtained an inheritance. <laughs> this is a future event spoken about as if it has already happened. It is absolutely a surety. There can be no question about it. God has predestined it, therefore it will 
happen. Nothing's going to stop that. Nothing's going to derail that. In his time, it will happen. So in due time, we're going to clearly see that this is God's will and everything has ultimately worked toward this purpose. There will come a time that we will be able to see very clearly how everything that we have known in life and seen and everything that God has done from eternity past has worked toward this purpose of His will to bring the universe, us included, to this point where it is all united under Jesus Christ perfectly and without sin, without blemish, without spot of any sort. But this is his predestined will, and this is the inheritance that we will take part in. And everything he has ever done, never will do, is working toward that purpose. Remember, God's glory is the main purpose of our salvation. It's not to make us feel good. It is for the glory of God. Remember, it's all about God. We're going to hear that a lot as we move through the book of Ephesians. It's all about God. Every last thing. We, we, can, we can take ourselves completely out of the equation. It is all about Him even our very salvation. So he deserves our praise. As Christians, we should be all about His glory, praising Him always in all things. His praise should be on our lips. We should be thanking Him. We should be giving Him the glory. Philippians 4, 4 says, Rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. There's no stuttering there. Rejoice in the Lord always. How much of our time do we spend in self-pity and despair in complaints and with our focus someplace else? But rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I will say, rejoice. It can't be much more plain than that. In Psalm 86, verse 12, David said, I will praise you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. Through the grace of God and God alone, we have this redemption, this salvation, through the blood of Jesus Christ. Which will ultimately bring us to an inheritance in Him. All according to the will of God. And to His praise. And to His glory. So as we close this out this morning. 
the words that should truly remain on our lips should be that of David in the 86th Psalm, verse 12. I'll read it again. I will praise you, O my Lord God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forevermore. No more. Look at what we built. Look at what we've accomplished. Look at what we did. But instead, praising and glorifying God, look at what He has done. Look at His marvelous and wonderful works. Look at how His glory shines. And how He has brought people to Him how he has worked his goodwill. And praise the Lord that maybe he has used me or you or all of us to be a part of it. But never forget it's his work, not ours. That we should be, as Jesus said, about my father's business. Because that's what it's all about. Because truly, it is all about God. Let's pray as we go into.